chapter number two. Before we read the passage, I want to go through somewhat of a lengthy introduction. Um, the title of the message, and guys, when you find that, go ahead and get up the, the slide that says, The Friend of Sinners, The Scandal of Amazing Grace. I think it's the second slide. Um, without an understanding of the culture of first century Palestine, it's easy for us, when, when we read stories like what we're going to read today, to miss the full meaning of the passage of Scripture that we're going to read. Um, especially when we're studying the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. Uh, because of this, one of the great challenges in Bible study is to understand our, how our own biases and assumptions color our understanding and interpretation of a particular passage in the Bible. And before I go any further, I do need to say one thing that I forgot to say this morning, and that is, welcome to those watching by way of live stream, especially Rodney and Kim Ogle. Rodney and Kim Ogle, former members of our church, uh, they're over in England now. I talked to them on the phone yesterday, and I told them that we would say hello to them. They are watching every Sunday by way of live stream. So turn to one of the cameras and say, good morning, Rodney and Kim. Anyway, good morning, Rodney and Kim. Uh, I'm not sure if you can see us all, but uh, they're watching today by way of live stream, and many others are as well, but wanted to say hello to them. Certainly miss them and are praying for them as they get settled in England and find a church and uh, get, get, get connected there. But anyway, back to our study, kind of what I was saying there in the introduction is, is that the challenge of studying and understanding the Bible is understanding how our own biases and assumptions color what we're reading. And so it's important for us as we approach the Bible to, as much as we can, get back into the thinking of a first century Jew, uh, specifically in the Gospels, because that's where all this was happening in Jerusalem and in the land of Israel. And so in our study today, Jesus is going to call a tax collector by the name of Levi to follow him. And then he proceeds to have a meal with Levi at his house with a lot of his tax collector buddies and sinners. To us, this might not seem like a huge issue. Okay, Jesus goes over to somebody's house for a dinner. But to the first century, predominantly religious Jewish mind, this was a huge, huge, huge scandal. Tax collectors were the lowest of the low in that society. They were viewed as treasonous scum. I think I've given you the illustration before, but imagine that Germany won World War II and they came and occupied permanently the U.S. And some of your American citizen neighbors decided to become a tax collector for the German government. And not only did they decide to become a tax collector, a sellout for the German government, but then they decided, because the German government gave them leeway, that they were going to collect more than just what was a required tax. They were given power and authority to collect more than what the German government required so that you could live a lavish life. This was the kind of person that Levi was. He didn't care about a lot of stuff in life, but what he did care about, he cared about money. And so he was a tax collector. And in that society, tax collectors were as low on the, on the scale as prostitutes, lepers, um, thieves, murderers. And so if you were a religious person in the first century, you would not dare associate yourself with one of them. So when the religious people saw that Jesus was associating himself, we're going to be reading Mark 2, verses uh, 13 through 17. 
When they see this, they gave to Jesus the title, the friend of sinners. And that was not a compliment. That was actually a scornful, um, uh, 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 a scornful phrase. And so why would Jesus choose to do this? Well, grace, period. Grace. He chose to love Levi and rescue Levi from his success as a tax collector. And he would forsake all and follow Jesus that day. And so as we read this passage this morning, I want us to see what God does. Because Jesus is the friend of sinners. And we see in this story today the scandal of amazing grace. It says in Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. The religious people were saying this about Jesus. And they said, behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. Luke says it this way, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And ye say, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. And so this was the title that they gave to Jesus. Why did they conclude that? Because Jesus seemed to want to reach sinners. He seemed to want to be in their company. Now, of course, we know Jesus never, you know, sinned. I mean, he was perfect. And of course, we understand that. But, but it was because of his association with them. Just being associated, not being separated from them, not, not shunning them, not, not turning a cold shoulder to them like all the religious did. In fact, the Pharisees were so separated from sinners, tax collectors, uh, the lowest of the low, that in one of their writings it says you don't even go near a sinner, not so much even as to teach that sinner the law. So in their culture, they wouldn't even waste their time teaching them the law. That's how they viewed this segment of society. And so when they see Jesus associating himself, they're like, well, this can't be a holy person because we're more holy than that guy is. We don't, we, we don't want to have anything to do with them. And so this was the title that they gave to Jesus. We see throughout the, the, the gospels, other interactions with Pharisees and sinners. Um, over in Luke 7, verse 39, Jesus went to another Pharisee's house. And do you remember the woman who, uh, 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 who anointed Jesus' feet and shed tears with her hair? We gather from that text, I preached on it recently, we, we, we gather from that text that this woman was a woman of the world, a woman of the streets, if you get what I'm saying. And the Pharisee was having this dilemma in his mind. He's like, he should know that she is a sinner. There's another uh, situation in Luke chapter 18 where it says two men went to the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector like Levi, a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself saying, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And this is where they put the tax collector also in the same category. And even as this tax collector. And so Jesus today encounters this man, Levi. And so what we see here, just by way of introduction, before we even read the story, is we see that God justifies the ungodly, not the people who think they're godly. 
And the problem is always, the problem is always, as, as you study the Gospels at least. Now certainly Jesus came to confront people about their hedonism, but he also came to confront people about what they thought was their moralism. And so he confronted both. He dealt with both. And the big thing in the first century was he was dealing with people who thought that they were good enough. Who thought that they were righteous enough. But Romans is clear. Paul is clear. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. God justifies the ungodly. He says over in Romans 5, 6, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And that's what you see in this guy today, in the life of Levi, also known as Matthew. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about in a second how his name got changed. Because he's only called Levi in the gospel account of Mark. He's called Matthew, both in Matthew and Luke, where this story also shows up. In fact, this story is so important in the life of Jesus that all three gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, now John's kind of stands off in his own in a unique way, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention this story, the calling of Levi, of Matthew, for a very important reason, as we'll see today. And so with all that said, let's read our text here. I know I spent a little time by way of introduction, but I think it's important as we set the scene for this story. Are you ready? Verse 13. And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. What is that? It's almost, uh, how many of you have ever been through a toll tax booth? Raise your hand. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, we went through a lot up in the state of New York. And by the way, can I just say this about the state of New York? Sorry, state of New York, if you're watching. Uh, Y'all's taxes are burdensome, onerous. We paid probably close to $50 in toll tax. And then there were some of these crazy toll tax booths where they took a picture of your license plate. We thought we were going through them for free. No. And you know what's really bad is I missed the letters that came in the mail for two months. And then they sent one in bright orange, and that got my attention. Do you know that a $2 toll turned into a $102 toll? That was a blessing. Anyway, uh, so, so we are familiar with tax collectors. Can I get a witness? I mean, we're familiar with these kind of toll taxes. So this is what, there was a main road from Damascus to Capernaum. And, and Levi was sitting here, kind of probably on the outskirts of the city of Capernaum. And Jesus leaves the house where he's been teaching. Of course, the week before, we looked at where he was teaching at, probably in the house of Simon and Andrew. And that's where the paralytic had been lowered through the roof. And we saw that wonderful story last week. So he, went, so he goes forth again by the seaside. So Jesus leaves the house because he knows he can minister to more people outside of a home by the seaside. He can minister to the multitudes. Uh, verse 14, he passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, this toll tax booth, and said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. So you see what happens? Levi follows Jesus. Then Levi invites Jesus over to his home. And Levi invites all of his tax collector buddies to have a feast with Jesus. And in the process of that, I'm guessing Levi probably shared his testimony. And look, it says, and many followed him. So there's literally a revival happening in the home of Levi. Tax collectors, sinners, thieves, 
uh, all kinds of people are getting saved, are wanting to follow Jesus. In verse 16, And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? How is that? When Jesus heard it, he said unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What we see in this story today is that the glory of the gospel is not that God gives salvation to the people who earn it, or that he gives salvation to the people who achieve it, or to the people who are good enough or righteous enough or holy enough, but he gives salvation to the ungodly and the unholy and the unrighteous who repent and believe in Christ alone. That's a mouthful, but man, that's the truth of the gospel. We better receive that this morning because it is good news. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous. And why did he not come to call the righteous? Because he knew there wasn't anybody that was righteous. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If we've kept the whole law and yet offended in one point, we are guilty of all. And the reason that we're not amazed by grace, the reason that we're not captivated by his love, the reason that we just... The love of God, the gospel just seems to be, eh, is because we don't see our sin for what it is. And we don't see him for who he truly is. And this was the problem, even in this story, and you see it throughout the gospel accounts, that revival, transformation of people's lives was happening. And all that the religious there could see was he's associating himself with publicans and sinners. And so what we see is that the Christian faith is not for good people. It's for people who know they're bad. Salvation is not for people who think they are righteous. It is for people who know they are not righteous. It's for people who hunger and thirst after righteousness, not people who think they've achieved it. And this is what we see in the life of Levi. And in contrast, the life of the Pharisees, they clearly didn't think they needed it. And so our Lord's gospel ministry and any gospel ministry uh, should, is going to be focused on, on the reality of getting this truth out, of showing people that they are sinners, admitting that they're sinners, and that they, desire to, uh, th- th- that they desire God's forgiveness, and they turn and trust in faith in Christ because he is the only source of forgiveness. So today we see four truths here in this study. First of all, we see the call of Levi. And as you study God's word and you look at different commentaries, sometimes you find outlines that just you can't improve on. And that is one of the cases today. Uh, a lot of this outline is not original with me or the four main points aren't. But uh, I thought this was a great way that one um, student of God's word broke it down. So this outline's not original with me. I, I, I was like, well, the way he broke it down, I can't improve on. So the call of Levi, the first truth we see this morning, verses 13 and 14. Um, Again, a little background here in verse 13. Jesus has left the house where he's been teaching because he just couldn't minister to enough people being packed in that home. Um, He had been doing teaching there in the house. He had performed that miracle with the paralyzed man. And so he goes out again by the seashore. Uh, Much of his teaching was outdoors because they couldn't confine the crowd to a house. And so that's the reason he left the house. And so Jesus didn't leave the house to avoid the people. 
Um, but he left the house so the crowd could get larger, so that more people could come to him. And, and so he did this so that he could proclaim the good news of the gospel to even more people. And I'm, I'm just thankful that, that Jesus had that heart and that he wanted, wanted to do that. And so and then verse 14 says, he passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. Some, some scholars have, have wondered if Levi was also the brother to uh, James and John, the son of Alphaeus. The name Alphaeus was a rather common name during that time, so we're not really sure. But maybe Levi was somehow related to some of these other disciples, maybe a, maybe a cousin, maybe a brother. We don't know exactly, but, but Levi was sitting at the receipt of custom, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, when you think about what Jesus did, he's a rabbi. He, he's viewed as a Jewish rabbi, a religious teacher of some, on some level. And, and so for Jesus to want a tax collector to follow him, again, was scandalous to the people of this time. Um, if by accident somehow a tax collector started following a rabbi's group, the rabbi at the first opportunity would say, no, no, thank you. Uh, I don't want you being associated with me, bringing down my reputation, bringing down my credibility. Um, it would literally be the biggest stain on anyone's career to have a follower and a friend who was a tax collector. That was the worst of the worst, the dregs of human society in Israel. So no self-respecting teacher, no self-respecting person would want to call a tax collector into his close company. No self-respecting person would want a tax collector as a friend. Man, I'm so thankful for Jesus, aren't you? That he would want a tax collector, because you know what that means? That if he would want a tax collector, he also wants you. And notice what I just said. I didn't qualify that you. I didn't say he wants good you, he wants pretty you, he wants financially successful you. He wants you. Because that's what he realizes you need. Is him. And so Jesus was different all around. He was shattering the stereotypes. I mean, in the story just before this, he, he shocked the religious group. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Hello? They should have recognized. Jesus in that story, when he healed the paralyzed man, he was showing that he had the authority to forgive sins. And now in this story, he's going to show you what kind of people he forgives. People who realize that they're ungodly. People who realize that they they need it. And so Jesus was about shadowing, shattering all the stereotypes that were around. Uh, so he goes back to Capernaum. He passes this toll tax station, and, and, uh, and Matthew is there collecting taxes. Now, what's interesting about how taxes worked in that time period is the Romans, of course, were the occupying force, as I mentioned earlier, and the Romans would sell tax franchises to people. And so it was, it was a lot like an auction. Um, if, if, if you wanted to get one of these toll stations, you had to go and you had to pay up. And so Levi already had some kind of means to be able to purchase this business and to purchase this ability to, to, to have this tax franchise. And so they were sold to the highest bidder. And, and the great thing is once you got the franchise, you had it. You could pass it on to your family and it would you know, stay in the family in that way. So once you got one, it was, it was an easy way to make a lot of money. In fact, in the companion story of this over in Luke chapter 5, it says that Levi had a big house. You know why he had a big house? Because he knew how to take a lot of money from people, just like Zacchaeus did. Zacchaeus was another tax collector that we read about in Luke chapter number 19. 
And so Ma Matthew had this tax franchise. He was, he was obviously Jewish because he was named Levi after, after one of Jacob's sons there in the Jewish, uh, 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 Jewish history. And so he was Jewish, but he sold his soul to the Romans for money. That's what he did. He sold his soul to the Romans for money. The Romans were idolaters. The Romans were hated by the Jews. They were Gentiles. They were unclean. And so the Jews despised the Romans. And so if you were a tax collector, you were the worst of the worst, as I've, as I've mentioned. Now, we don't know how Matthew got his name changed. Um, we know where Levi got his name changed. He was Levi here in this story. But over in the book of Matthew, which Matthew wrote, isn't that interesting? God used a tax collector to write one of the four gospel accounts about, about the life of Jesus. So Matthew calls himself Matthew in, in, in his book, Matthew, and Luke calls him Matthew. Um, I don't know why that is, but, 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 but one commentary guessed that maybe he had to change his name because the name Levi was associated with his tax collecting business. I also think it's neat that the name Matthew means the gift of God. And I think what Matthew understood is he understood the gift that he had been given by his Savior. I don't think he ever got over it. And I think so much so that he wanted to change his name. We see that many times in the Bible when people's names get changed. And so what a transformation in this man's life. Somehow, in some way, his name gets changed, and we can deduce that that's for one of two reasons, because Jesus changed his life so much, his name changes, and probably because he doesn't want to be connected with his former life. Um, and so, this Matthew uh, um, is called by Jesus. Now, think about it. Think about what he's about to do. And this is what's amazing about Mark, Mark especially, but really all the gospel accounts. It's like when Jesus calls somebody, there's like no debate in the text. And so we really don't know all the details here, but it's like he says, follow me, in verse 15, and it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meeting, and, and he arose and followed him. Sorry, I actually overread that. Follow me, and he arose and followed him. It happened so quick, I missed it <laughs> at the end of verse 14. So, so you scratch your head and you're like, okay. Think about the guys who had already been called to follow Jesus. Uh, the four fishermen. They left their fishing uh, business and that was kind of tied to their family so in a way for those guys they kind of had a road back to their old business in fact we see this at the end of the gospel accounts what did Peter and a lot of the guys go back to doing they went back to fishing you know why because fish are always going to be in the water and you can catch them and it's because it was a part of the family business and so when they followed Jesus they they left and left the family business but there was kind of a way to go back to it but when you study what Matthew did, it says he arose and followed him. In another passage, in, in uh, the Luke passage, it says that he forsook all. Look at Luke 5.28 there on the screen. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. Now remember, for a tax collector, he had purchased this franchise. It doesn't say that he had family to leave it to. So we can deduce that Matthew, when he was following Jesus, was like, okay, I'm giving up the franchise. And let me tell you, there were vultures right there ready to take over that franchise. And so when he follows Jesus, I don't think there was a way to go back to the toll station. 
There wasn't a way to go back to the thing that he had cared about his whole life. I mean, Matthew was a Jew, but evidently he didn't care about what people thought about him. He didn't care about his place in society. He didn't care much about religion. He didn't care about friendships, but what he did care about was money. He cared a lot about it. But at this point, Jesus calls him to follow him, and Matthew leaves all of that. Wow. He leaves all of that. As I told you earlier, tax collectors were not looked upon highly. The Mishnah and Talmud, which were written later after the time of Christ, wrote scathing judgments on tax collectors, lumping them with thieves and murderers. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. And so Levi, Matthew, the traitor, Levi, the extortioner, Levi, the robber, the outcast, the one who's all about money, greedy, this abusive sinner becomes a disciple and an apostle of Jesus and a writer of one of the four gospel accounts of Jesus. Matthew lost his career, but he gained eternal glory. He lost material possessions, but he gained heaven. He lost earthly security, but he gained a heavenly inheritance. He knew what the Jewish leaders did not know. I think what Levi knew is that it was for men and women like him that Jesus came to bring salvation. And so we see this call of Levi. But number two, as we, we continue through the study, we see then the community of sinners. Look at verse 15. It says, And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners um, sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many and they followed him. So Matthew, he's now a follower of Jesus. And I can, you know, I'm just trying to, as I read this story, think through maybe how Matthew is responding. And, you know, of course, Matthew is first taken back that a rabbi, a, a person who, call, you know, loves God, would want him to follow him. And, and I'm guessing that Matthew, because he was on the outskirts of Capernaum, had already heard about this Jesus. And then he's shocked that Jesus would want him to be a follower of his. And so Matthew steps into this new relationship with Jesus. And the first thing that Matthew can think of is, I want to have a party and invite all my friends that don't know Jesus to come meet Jesus. That's refreshing, isn't it? One of the most beautiful things when a person truly gets the gospel is they understand how good the good news is and they can't keep their mouth shut. They've got to tell somebody. They've got to invite somebody over to their house to do a Bible study or to, or to, or to come to church with them the next Sunday. And, and so there's this refreshing uh, response here in Matthew. Matthew, I think, is now filled with gratitude. He's thrilled about what the Lord has done in his life. And, and so he's going to have a party. He's going to have a banquet. This is a lavish, long, drawn-out, big-time feast to honor Jesus Christ. As I told you, he has a big house. He was a tax collector after all. Luke 5.29 says that he has a, a, big, a big house. And, and so it says here in this story, actually in, in some of the other gospel accounts, as you read them, that they were reclining as they ate. Um, and so he was eating with all these people. There was a revival breaking out within the tax collector establishment. Tax collectors and sinners were beginning to follow him, verse 15 says. And here for the first time in the book of Mark, Mark uses the word disciples. That's, I find that interesting. That right here in this story is when Mark uses the word disciple for the first time. The word disciple means a learner. Somebody who is following Jesus to learn from him. 
And so there was Jesus along with his disciples. The uh, six would have been there that he's already called. And now we add Matthew to the group. And, and perhaps there were other followers. And it says here that they were all enjoying one another's company. Revival was happening. And then we see the contempt of the self-righteous. So Jesus calls Levi. Then there's a party. And transformation of lives is occurring. And then comes the contempt of the self-righteous. Verse 16. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? The Pharisees cannot let this go. They, they are always around. They're always criticizing each step that Jesus takes. Um, they don't leave him alone. They are absolutely relentless in their pursuit. And so when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he says to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And what this shows us is, again, the scandal was that Jesus would accept, eat, fellowship with these people for the purpose, of course, for the purpose of transforming their lives. And we see that in verse 15. Their lives were being transformed. And so when the, scribes and the Pharisees, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw this, they understood that eating symbolized acceptance or welcome or even more friendship. They wouldn't eat with anybody who was a sinner. And, and, and they took that from some of the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 1 verse 1 says, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And, and so they took that verse... And they use that to say, well, that we should be totally separated from sinners and have no fellowship with them at all. And, and what you see there is the danger of taking one verse or one principle in God's word and misapplying it to where you miss mercy, you miss grace, you miss all these other things. And so the Pharisees thought, well, how could Jesus be the Savior? How could he be my Savior? Because he, he's not following what Psalm 1-1 says. In another passage, again, over in the book of Luke, it says that these guys were literally murmuring. And so they ask this rhetorical question, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Remember, they had morality, but they had no really true holiness. They could look good on the outside, but they couldn't be good on the, at the core of who they were. They could act righteous, but they couldn't be righteous. And so their question was intended to be this stabbing rebuke, a, a bitter, vindictive indictment of Jesus. They're basically saying these are Satan's people, and they were facing the distinction between all false religion and the gospel, because the gospel is a conflict between grace and all other religions, which are some form of some works-based righteousness law. And so this was the confrontation that day. The scandal of grace that Jesus would call a tax collector to be his follower, that he would then proceed to have a meal with more of his tax collector buddies. But look what the purpose was for. The purpose was to transform their lives so that they would follow him at the end of verse 15. And then the contempt of the self-righteous comes along. So, 
true to their religion, they registered this vindictive outrage. He's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Sinners is the big category, and tax collectors there are pulled out to point out Matthew. No, I mean, I wonder if Matthew heard this. I wonder if his tax collector buddies heard this. I wonder how they responded to the contempt of the self-righteous. I wonder how many times people who have been deceived into self-righteous, law-based living actually are the ones that are, keep, are standing in the way of people actually coming to Jesus. And so the contempt of the self-righteous, the community of sinners, the, the call of Levi, and finally the rebuke of Jesus, verse 17. Notice how Jesus responds. <laughs> he responds so much better than probably I would have. <laughs> um, what I love about the life of Jesus is he was patient. He was patient with all different kinds of people. Now, there were times when, man, I'm tell you what, we're going to study some of the passages. Jesus was just flat out, straight up bold. Hey, you can be when you're the creator of all. And he was very bold and harsh against the religious and self-righteous. But there were many times where he was very patient with them too. He would go over to their house and have a meal as well. Simon the Pharisee there in Luke 7. But notice how Jesus responds. Notice his rebuke. Verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our Lord's response to this to this you know, rhetorical question that was meant to uh, harm Jesus in his ministry, to hurt those that were there. It's in a fascinating way that he responds. First, he uses an analogy between a doctor and a sick person. So he says, okay, doctors go to sick people. And I think what he was trying to say is, okay, guys, if you say they're sinners, aren't I supposed to go to sinners? Yeah, I get You think you're in this class and you think you don't need a physician. But you're saying by the very fact that they're sinners that isn't a doctor supposed to go to sinners? I think what he was also saying by that, though, is that he was saying, I don't think you see how sick you are. Yeah, if you don't think you're sick, then you're not going to listen to a doctor who says he has a cure for you. It'd be kind of like if you were to walk in today and say, hey, guess what? I've got a cure for cancer for you, but that's not a big deal if you don't have cancer. The reality is, is that we all do, spiritually speaking, without Christ. And that's what makes the cure so incredibly wonderful, is that Jesus came to deal with sin once and for all through his finished work upon the cross. Jesus is the spiritual doctor. He is the spiritual great physician, the healer. And so, obviously, doctors go to people who need healing. And so if the Pharisees can see how sick with sin these people are, and they clearly seem to think that they already can see that, they know that they're sinners, they label them as sinners, they have a complete recognition of their sinfulness, then doesn't it make sense that if the Savior comes that he goes to sinners? So it was weird, you know, they were like, they couldn't even see what they were saying that didn't make sense, and Jesus points out their inconsistency, which I love. He, he, he had all wisdom. 
And it's, and it's rather easy to show the inconsistency of those who are trying to live by a law-based works righteousness system. You contradict yourself because James is clear. Keep it all or you're a sinner. But what law-based righteousness does, it creates hypocrisy and masks in the church where we like to think that we're a lot better than we are. And so when a sinner walks through the door, oh. When someone who doesn't know Jesus walks through the door, we're like, And that's the very thing that Jesus is trying to show them they're missing. They're, They're missing the whole point of why he came. Jesus' rebuke here was a very strong indictment of the coldness of their hearts. Very strong indictment. So the analogy is obvious. You said they're sinners. If they're sinners, if they're sick with sin, then they need a spiritual healer. They need a spiritual doctor to forgive their sins. So he uses this analogy. But second, he talks about the kind of people that he came to save. He says at the end of this verse, I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And so what Jesus does in this story, see, in the story last week that we studied, we see the authority that Jesus has to forgive sins. And he confirmed it with an incredible miracle that would affirm to anybody who really knew the Old Testament, who really knew the Old Testament, that would affirm that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. So he showed that he had the authority for, to forgive sins last week in Luke chapter or in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This week he shows you the kind of people that he forgives. Sinners. Sinners. And so as he talks with them through all this, he shows them that they aren't really estimating themselves correctly either. That while the law is good because it brings us to a place where we see our need, the law can actually also be used in a wrong way, just like all of God's word can. I mean, Sunday nights we're studying all these false religions that are in the world, and many of them use the Bible, believe it or not. (laughs) But they take the word of God out of context, twist it, misapply it. Satan's always tried to do that, to twist God's word. And so what Jesus points out to them here is how they've taken what was meant to bring them to him and they showing them how it's really created a wall. It's created this own self-righteous spirit where they can't even see the reason why he's here. They can't be excited about the fact that a tax collector has come to be a follower of his and that this tax collector was so overwhelmed with gratitude that he wanted to throw a party so that they could also meet Jesus, so that they could also become followers of him. And so Jesus rebukes them. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so what we see here in this story is the church, the church is not made up of, quote, good people. It's made up of bad people. It's not made up of people who think they're righteous. It's made up of people who know they're not. It's made up of people who have not, who, who have, who have not attained a certain acceptable degree of God favor with God. It's made up of people who know that they could never attain to an acceptable place before God. And so that's, that's how we came into the family of God when we realized all of my efforts, whether good or bad, because see the gospel, I love the gospel because the gospel of grace deals with hedonism on this side, but it also deals with moralism on this side. And I'm going to tell you what, in 10 years of preaching the gospel as a lead pastor here at Fairview, you know where I found most of the resistance? The same place Jesus did. 
the religious, the self-righteous. You know, I've been called more names by the religious and self-righteous in this city than anybody who didn't know Jesus. Fancy that. And so with Jesus here, I think he smiled when he was called the friend of sinners. (laughs) He's like, yeah, that's why I came. The church is not made up of people who think they're good. It's made up of people who know they're know they're lost without Christ. It's not made up of people who have achieved righteousness on their own. It's made up of people who have received righteousness from God as a gift. This is the gospel. I couldn't help but think of the song this week, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. As Rebecca comes and we prepare for our closing, the words of these, the lyrics to this song are just so powerful. As you As I read these lyrics, think about the story that we've studied today, the call of Levi, and then how after Jesus calls Levi away from his business and his franchise of tax collecting and his his need for the love of money, and now all that's behind him, and he wants to throw this party for his friends and and have them meet Jesus, and then then to only be sitting there to have the the self-righteous with their contempt saying, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Think about your own heart. Would you be inside the house at the party watching people's lives be transformed? Or would you be on the outside raising an eyebrow, casting a glance, whispering with other people? Jesus, friend of sinners, we have strayed so far away. We cut down people in your name, but the sword was never ours to swing. Jesus, friend of sinners, the truth's become so hard to see. The world is on their way to you, but they're tripping over me. Always looking around, but never looking up. I'm so double-minded. We don't know which mountain that we're to relate to God from. Sinai was good in its day, but Sinai leads us to Calvary. Hebrews 12, verses 18 and following. Read it, my friends. God tells us we got to know which mountain we relate to God from, but we're double-minded. We're trying to live in both halves But God's brought us into a new covenant, the finished work. He says here, a plank-eyed saint with 30 hands and a heart divided. Jesus, friend of sinners, open our eyes to a world at the end of our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach with open hearts and open doors. Jesus, friend of sinners, break our hearts for what breaks your heart. You can read the rest of the lyrics later, but... A song that I just couldn't get out of my head this week as I read this story. I'm so thankful for Jesus and the title that he carried through his earthly ministry. He was a friend of sinners. And so what you realize is, is people are going to talk about you if you believe the truth of the gospel and, and you actually shatter the stereotypes. People are going to talk about you and you know what? Some of the titles and some of the things they're going to say about you, they're going to get back to you. You're going to hear them, and you're just going to smile, and you're going to say, yeah, that's why I'm here. God's called me to be a follower of his, and I want, to, I want people to find Jesus just like Levi and his tax collector buddies did. How about you, church? How about you, brother and sister? Their heads bowed and your eyes closed.